reading is Psalm 101, verses 1 through 4. And so if you could stand for the reading of God's word. And there, in these four verses, there is a page change. So that part may be a little clumsy because, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, let's begin. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. The word of the Lord. Thank you. In Second Chronicles, chapter 29, we're introduced to the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah. Hezekiah was a spiritual breath of fresh air following the reigns of two evil kings, Jotham and Ahaz. And his first order of business once he ascended the throne was the cleansing of the temple. It had... It had basically fallen into disrepair and disuse. So he calls together the priests and Levites and he commissions them to the task. And we pick up the story in Second Chronicles 29 verses 15 and 16 where it says this, These men, especially the Levites, these men called together their fellow Levites and they all purified themselves. Then they began to cleanse the temple of the Lord just as the king had commanded. They were careful to follow the Lord's instructions in their work. The priests went into the sanctuary of the temple of the Lord to cleanse it, and they took out to the temple courtyard all the defiled things they found. From there, the Levites carted it out to the Kidron Valley. Cleansing work. Did you hear? There's... There's two cleansings. There was purification of the Levites and purification or cleansing of the temple. And after the temple was cleansed, there was revival in the land. If you read through the the Scripture verses following this passage I read to you, you'll find find out that there was then a renewal of temple worship. Worship in the temple, I mean, not worship of the temple. There was a revival of the Passover celebration. And there was a revival of God alone worship. And I think you might know what we mean by that because we know that there was this ongoing problem in Judah and Israel of people beginning to drift away from God and begin to worship the idols of the lands that surrounded them. But in this case, after the cleansing of the temple, there was a restoration of God alone worship as there was a cleansing in the land of the idols, asherah poles, and high places where people worshipped these idols, there was a cleansing of those things. And it all began with the cleansing of the temple. And I think 
there's a lesson hidden in this story that we can apply to our lives. And that is this. If we want revival, we must cleanse the temple. But I'm not talking about the building. Or more succinctly, if I want revival, I must cleanse the temple. Now, let's add a New Testament perspective to this idea with these Scriptures. First one is this, 1 Corinthians 6.19. 1 Corinthians 6.19, and it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And then 2 Corinthians 6.16. 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they, they will be my people. So we've taken this from an Old Testament perspective of the of a building, a structure that was a temple, to the New Testament perspective that we ourselves are the temple. See where I'm going? We are the temple. And just like in Hezekiah's day, there are times when it is necessary to cleanse the temple if we want to see revival in our lives and in our church. So, Is the cleansing revival? Or does revival come because of the the cleansing? Is the cleansing revival? Or does revival come because of the cleansing? Here's here's this pastor's answer to that question. Yes. Is that satisfactory? So then we turn to the passage that Dean read for us today because I believe in this passage there is a temple cleansing checklist. And it begins with verse 2. Clean up your walk. And verse 2 says, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. In the the English Standard Version, it says it like this, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? Do you see see that right here, even in, in, in this first phrase, we see the need for God to do that work within. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I need your help if I'm going to live a blameless life. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. So we're going to look at this as the external. What others see, including those in our own household. What people see in our actions and attitudes. A minister parked his car in a no-parking zone in a large city because he was short of time and couldn't find a space with a meter. So he put a note under the windshield wiper that read, I have circled the block 100 times and couldn't find a parking spot. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. 
When he returned, he found a citation from a police officer along with this note. I've circled this block for ten years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. <laughs> Folks, it's about integrity. That's what, what it says in the English Standard Version. I walk, will walk with integrity of heart within my house. What do other people see as they look at me? You know, if I claim to be a Christian, then there's a way that I must walk. The external that people must see in my life. It's all about integrity. What do others see in your life that indicates to them that you are a Christ follower? Or are there things that others see that would make them question whether you are a Christian or not? And the word here that he uses in in verse 2 is blameless. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. Blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? If you go back and read this in the New in the um, King James, instead of the word blameless there, it uses perfect. I will seek to lead a perfect life. I will walk in my house perfect. What? How do you do that? Well, first of all, it is a matter of the heart that should result in godly behavior. If we're going to walk in a way that people see the external, then it begins here. And we're going to address that a little more as we go along. A perfect heart is one that is given wholly to God and is set on obedience to His commands and will. And if we have that kind of heart, then the external should reflect that, should it not? Um, But does it always end up in perfect performance? Yeah, probably not. (laughs) You know, I can't always get you to respond, but you guys are pretty responsive on that one. However, we can lead blameless lives. The psalmist says, I will be careful to lead, I will walk. He uses those two phrases. There is a determination in in the life of the psalmist to live in such a way that when others, including those in his own home, which I think is the toughest place to live consistently, it's one thing to kind of keep up the facade when we're out there, but in our own home where the... You know, the masks come off. It's, so I think it's pretty valuable that he said, I even want to live a blameless life in my own home. There's a determination on his part that those who look at him will see a man who is blameless, whether it's people outside the walls of his home or inside the walls of his own home. Now... Um, This whole idea of blameless, I looked it up in the Beacon Bible Dictionary. And it says this regarding blamelessness. Because willfulness, okay, that's an important word, because willfulness is a necessary element of guilt incurring sin, no blame attaches to involuntary transgression. In the consideration of blame and blameless, Such related factors as foreknowledge and forethought, 
Ignorance and forgetfulness, culpability and responsibility would all demand attention. The ethical concept of sin postulates... I know this is going to speak in English, Pastor, but I don't know how to get this in English, so here you go. The ethical concept of sin postulates a proper and clear distinction between, between sin willfully committed and error springing from human infirmity or lack of knowledge. That's one reason why um, uh, the question I answered about perfect performance a while ago, everybody said, no! Error springing from human infirmity or lack of knowledge. Hence, it is entirely scriptural to describe Christians living obediently, and with pure intention, which we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, of pleasing the Lord and still being blameless, but not faultless. Do you see what I mean? Blamelessness has to do with the intent of the heart. You know, an illustration, I, have I, I don't know, I'm probably, I forget. Uh, that's what happens the older I get, I forget. So, I probably told you this before, but I love this illustration. Maybe because I'm the one who thought it up. I don't know. I think I thought it up. I've never seen it anywhere else. (laughs) But when I think about blameless and faultless, I think about Mother's Day. And the five-year-old who decides to make breakfast for mom because that five-year-old loves mom. Intent of the heart. And so they get up early and they go down to the kitchen and, you know, they fix eggs and bacon and orange juice and toast and they take it up to mom and the eggs are runnier than she likes and the toast is burnt and, you know, uh, the bacon's not done and, you know. And when mom comes down later to the kitchen, there's a mess. And mom doesn't grab that kid and slap him around and say, What is the matter with you? Mom praises them and thanks them. Why? Because of the intent of the child's heart. Were they faultless? No. Were they blameless? Yes. Yes. You know, someone I think of uh, in the Scripture who is a great example of a blameless life is Daniel. I've always been impressed with the fact that when his enemies looked for something to use against him, for something they could blame him for, they came up empty. Man, I wish that could be said about me. (laughs) Think about all the political races. And they vet these people and they go way back. You know? Why, when they were six years old, they stole the penny candy from the store. They're out! It's crazy. Yeah. So when they, when they tried to find something in Daniel's life to blame him for, they came up empty. They had to use something that he was doing right against him. They made a law against doing something right. And when Daniel continued to do something right, to pray to God instead of the king, that's what they got him on. Wouldn't it be great if we could all say 
that the only thing you could ever catch me for was doing the right thing? So we need to be mindful of what others see in our behavior and the impact that can have in their lives. What does our walk, our external look like? Does our, our external speak well of our relationship with Jesus or does it cause people to, to question our witness? Do we need to do some temple cleansing so that our walk exemplifies that, exemplifies that of the one who, of one who is committed to Christ and the lifestyle He has called us to live. Make sense? Make sense? Okay, that's, it's like, boy. Sometimes I wonder if people walk away from here thinking, what in the world was he talking about today? <laughs> Verse 3. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. Clean up your desires. Clean up your desires. Again, in the English Standard Version, it says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. I think we're talking about a lot of things all mixed together there. And folks, uh, let me tell you that what we see can create in us a desire for the wrong things, for vile things, for worthless things. And it's, it's prevalent in the world we live in. Thomas Carlyle said this, The greatest security against sin is to be shocked at its presence. The greatest security against sin is to be shocked at its presence. The problem is, there is a spiritual agenda from the enemy of our souls to make us immune to those things. Satan wants to get us used to the smell of garbage so that we don't notice it anymore. And it, ha- it can happen. Have you ever talked to somebody who lives near to an, an, an airport? And you go to visit their house and, and you're saying, man, how do you live with this? And they're saying, what? Live with what? They don't even hear it anymore. And that's what can happen. We begin immune. We're so bombarded with this stuff that we don't notice. We're not shocked by it. We're not dismayed by it. Our hearts aren't broken by it anymore. We've gotten immune. The greatest security against sin is to be shocked at its presence. He goes on to say, but the problem in America is that we no longer are no longer shocked by the presence of sin. Anything goes in America and it's on TV, the internet, at the movies, etc. What was once only seen at the movie show and rated R is now almost everyday viewing on TV. It's no wonder that kids get bad ideas and do bad things today. It's all glorified on TV as being normal behavior. Drinking, drugs, premarital sex, the gay lifestyle, shooting, killing, and it goes on and on and on. I'm thinking about whether I should say this or not. (laughs) You know, pastors aren't supposed to be political. We're just not supposed to do that. But I'm thinking about 
um, the debate on gun violence in our country. And, and I've talked to some of you about this. When I was a kid growing up, I grew up in rural southwest Idaho. It was an agricultural community. Um, kids who had pickup trucks drove to school with guns in the gun racks. Nobody, ever was, nobody was ever shot at our school. Nobody was ever threatened with a firearm. In fact, um, um, I remember a, a man in, in our community on the coast who grew up there in Tillamook. He said, when I was in high school, we brought our shotguns to school, took them in, put them in our locker, because there was an hour between the time school let out and football practice started. So when school let out, we'd take our shotguns, go out in the field, hunt ducks, and then... Nobody thought twice about it. So there are these big debates on what do we do about gun violence, and, and it's always about the gun. And, you know, I understand it's a tool that people use, but I always wonder, wait, what's the deeper issue here? Why is there all this gun violence? And nobody ever talks about that. Nobody ever talks about that. Not that I hear not in these debates that you see in the national news. Nobody ever talks about that. And so we're bombarded with this stuff and, you know, it, pretty soon it, it impacts our thinking and our acting, doesn't it? So there are those things that are obviously vile or worthless that we need to be careful to avoid. Exposure to those things can have an impact on our minds and hearts and ultimately the way we think and behave. Beyond that, there are those ungodly things we're exposed to just because they're part of the world we live in. You know, don't, I won't place any vile thing before my eyes, but sometimes... Vile things come before our eyes without our choice in the matter. It just, it's because of the world we live in. These can have a negative impact on us spiritually as well. It then necessitates the importance of periodic temple cleansing so that these things do not find a place in our hearts and our minds. Agreed? Now here's another perspective, and I... I don't know, maybe I'll step on some toes. Anything we put before God then becomes a vile and worthless thing. Anything we put... Boy, I'd like to commit violence against a fly right now. <laughs> Anything we desire more than God is a vile and worthless, and worthless thing. Those things that become idols in our lives... And when we begin chasing after idols, God no longer has that place of primacy in our lives that should be His. Other things come before God, and those things are vile, worthless things if they come before God. They have to kept, be kept in appropriate place of proper priority in our lives. And what's scary about this is those things can rise to the top so easily. 
I mean, we are encouraged in the world we live in to pursue pleasure and happiness and possessions and entertainment and the dollar and the list goes on and on. Right? So the question might be, what are we pursuing? A relationship with Jesus or something else in your life more important than that? Is something else in your life getting more of your attention, time, energy, and resources to the exclusion of your relationship with God? That happens. And the indicators of this are, well, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to come to church. I don't have time for ministry. I don't have the resources to give. So let me give this toe-stepping-on illustration. Because I've seen this too many times in my years of pastoral ministry, and it has to do with our fascination for sports in our country. Parents desire to have their child excel in a sport. You know, they want them to make the varsity team and or be a starter in high school, and maybe even hopes for a college scholarship. And they begin to compromise their commitments to God and the church. Families begin to miss worship service so they can attend games or tournaments on weekends. I saw Christian parents send their kid to basketball camp or football camp or soccer camp who, would, who never ever sent their kid to church camp. So they would send their child to a week-long sports camp that cost $500 and balk at a week-long church camp that cost $200. I'm not making this up. So this desire for athletic success ends up subjugating God to a place of one among other things that I should be doing but don't don't have time for. Did you get that? This desire for athletic success ends up subjugating God to a place of one among other things I should be doing but don't have time for because I want to see my kids succeed as an athlete. And folks, one of the problems with that is that it doesn't take long for the child to figure out what the system of priorities is here. It becomes pretty obvious that God is not at the top. Then then we have parents wondering whether kids walk away from God when they go to college or even before that. By the way, I want you to know that this young man... I guess he's young. He's a lot younger than me. In the gym who does this athletic training has his priorities squared away. And he wants his athletes to have their priorities squared away. He would never ever encourage kids to make athletes, athletics the goal of their life. So I calls it in the core. Because what's most important to him is what's in the heart and mind. And listen, that was just one example of how our desires can get out of balance, how we can desire other things more than God. Oh, can I tell you something? I know. Man, he keeps going off on these rabbit trails. What's the matter with the guy? Um, 
our girls all participated in athletics in high school, and I remember, um, and we, we avoided the, the all summer long stuff and the tournament teams that were gone all, every weekend. We just, we wouldn't go there. But I remember, um, I don't know if it was one of our girls' teams, it was a soccer team, and uh, the coach was a Mormon man. And um, there was a weekend tournament. And he said, the Mormon man said this, we'll play on Saturday, but we won't play on Sunday. And I said, you have just put a lot of Nazarenes to shame. Well, I'll I'll lay off that one now. (laughs) Just one example. That's just one example of how our desires can get out of balance, how we can desire other things more than God. And when we come to the realization that we are desiring other things more than God, when the Holy Spirit has our attention long enough for us to listen, then we need to submit those desires to God for cleansing. For rearranging so that He, again, is the ultimate desire of our lives. God needs to be up here. Clean up your heart. Verse 4. Men of perverse heart shall be far from Me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Again, the English Standard Version says, A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Both verse 4 and verse 2 mention the core issue, and that issue is the heart. All these other things start with the heart. It is what is in the heart that determines both our walk and our desires. If we want to clean up those areas of our life, then we must start with the heart. Matthew 15, verses 18 through 19. But what goes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And that's what contaminates a person in God's sight. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual sins, thefts, false testimony, and insults. It's a matter of the heart. Luke 6.45 A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And it will tell you that the person acts, lives out what the heart is full of. What is in our hearts not only determines what comes out of our mouths, it also determines how we act. The writer of Proverbs recognized this and emphasized the importance of heart monitoring. He says in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. So what do we do? What do we do about this heart thing? Well, the psalmist gives us some clues. 
Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Here's where we start. Search me, O God, and know my... Test me and see... Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And how does God do that? It's the work of His Holy Spirit in our lives. And He speaks to us most consistently through... So the Holy Spirit speaks to us and He does it most consistently through His Word. We, don't, we hardly ever hear the voice from the... Anybody ever heard the voice from the sky? Sid, get your act together. I've never heard that. I've heard it here, though. I've heard it here. I've heard it here. I'm hearing it today. You think, well, he's, he's preaching to us. He's preaching to Him. He's... So it's the work of His Holy Spirit and He speaks to us most consistently through His Word. And Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the... So when the Holy Spirit does His work in us and we become aware of those things in our lives that are offensive to God, we come to Him in confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. You know, the confession part's great. I'm sorry, God, I did this and... But repentance is determining to make a change so you don't do that again. So, we start with the confession part. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank God! You know, it's not like Monopoly. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200. No, no you don't have to go around and start all over again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But we need the repentance factor too. Acts 3.19 Repent then and turn to God so that your sins will be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Yeah. And then we can say with the psalmist or pray with the psalmist then, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Ah, I think that's all about revival. Now we go clear back to the beginning. Verse 1, keeping the temple clean. I will sing of your love and justice to you, O Lord, I will sing praise. When the psalmist is, what the psalmist is talking about here is a life that is God-centered and God-focused. I will sing of your love and justice to you, O Lord, I will sing praise. He's talking about a life that is God-centered and God-focused. 
One commentator said this, the writer does not mean that he is about in, the, in this present psalm to sing of God's love and justice, but that he will make it one of the rules of his life to do so. I'm not just going to sing about God's love and justice today when I write this psalm. It's going to be a lifelong practice. It's going to be the focus of my life. God is. I will sing too. I will praise God because He is the most important thing in my life. It is Him alone that I will worship. It is my desire to keep my focus on Him and His will for my life. So the question this would raise in my mind is, where is your focus? Who do you desire to honor and to please? Golf immortal Arnold Palmer recalls a lesson about overconfidence. He said this, It was the final hole of the 1961 Masters Tournament, and I had a one-stroke lead and had just hit a very satisfying tee shot. I felt I was in pretty good shape. As I approached the ball, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He motioned me over, stuck out his hand, and said, Congratulations. I took his hand and shook it. I've got this in the bag. But he says, as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. We must be careful not to lose our focus. Folks, we don't automatically have it in the bag. It is vital in key, it is vital for us to keep our temple clean. So how do we how do we do that? How do we focus on God? Well, we we attend to those things that allow or encourage the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Prayer, scripture, worship, both private and corporate. So God remains the focus in our lives. So, need cleansing? Need cleansing? Well, let me tell you, the blood of Jesus is the cleansing agent. The blood of Jesus is the cleansing agent. 1 John 1, seven. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Need temple cleansing? The blood of Jesus is the cleansing agent. Is cleansing the revival or does the revival come because of the cleansing? Yes. The important part is we're open before God and hear the voice of His Holy Spirit and we let Him cleanse the external, our walk, cleanse the desires of our lives, cleanse our hearts. Need cleansing? The blood of Jesus is the cleansing agent. Let's pray together this morning. And I, I just, uh, just a reminder, the altar's open.
Father, I, I, I'm not sure how to say this. I, I think sometimes we, we end up uh, getting dirtied or sullied just by the world we live in. Sometimes uh, we begin to take on some things by choice that we shouldn't. But the problem is then that the temple ends up being dirty. There are things in our lives that are offensive to you. And so we need a temple cleansing. And it's not what the Levites do. It's what the blood of Jesus does. And Father, no matter where we are in our journey, if, if you have spoken to us this morning about some cleansing that needs to be done in our lives, help us to forget about what someone else might think or anything like that but to be willing to bow before you and say, Holy Spirit of God, I want to be obedient. And I pray the blood of Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from righteousness and then to make that repentant determination in my life that I'm not going to go there again. Now I'm speaking... to people who are walking with Jesus. But if you've never known Jesus as Savior, His blood is the cleansing agent. Jesus came and died and shed His blood to cleanse us from all sin. So I want you all to know this morning, believer who just needs some cleansing of the temple or someone who hasn't ever known Jesus as Savior, it's His blood that does the cleansing. And so we pray this morning. We pray, Oh God, we open our hearts before You. Search us. Know us. See if there be any wicked way in us. Point it out. Bring it to our attention. And help us not to dodge the issue, but to be honest and open with You and Say, Lord God, you're right. I'm a believer who's allowed some things into the temple that are offensive to you and I want you to cleanse the temple today. Or I'm, I'm a sinner who needs the cleansing blood of Jesus. I, I want to be set free. I want to be cleansed of my sin. And when you want to come to the altar this morning and make that confession before Jesus or you want to do it in the seat where you are right now, I want to give us just some moments to be open and honest with God and allow Him to shine the light of His Holy Spirit in our lives to reveal those things that maybe we've hoped or thought or pretended weren't there so that they're brought, at, brought into the light and we can deal with them.
Let's just take time to do that right now. This is preparation of our hearts, people. Let's be honest and open with God. Father, I think today that there's nothing more that you appreciate, nothing more that you appreciate in someone's life than obedience. Obedience. And that's what this has been about today. To calling, it's calling us to obedience and dealing with that stuff in our lives that, that needs to go. And Father, I believe this. You can do great things through an obedient people. And we're praying that you can bring revival I believe you can and desire to bring revival to an obedient people. So, Father, my prayer is that as you've spoken our heart, to our hearts today, we have been obedient to what we've heard you say. We've allowed you to do whatever cleansing is necessary in our lives so that we are clean the temple is fit for your use and abiding, and that, Father, our hearts are ready for you to do in this week of special services what you want, and we pray that it will be revival, renewal, refreshing for your people. Thank you for your faithfulness in speaking to us through your word. You are never willing to leave us in that place of disobedience. Oh God, but You want us to be in that place of living a live, fresh, new relationship with You because we've allowed You to do that cleansing work in our lives through the blood of Jesus. And we give You thanks that You are willing to do that because You love us so deeply. And I pray now, Father, that You go with us in this coming week. And continue the preparation of our hearts as we pray and seek Your face. As Lord God, we allow Your Holy Spirit to continue to speak to us and are obedient to that voice. So that we are ready for You to revive us again. And we pray all of this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you for being attentive. God bless you with His grace and peace as you go this morning.